0: Hello and welcome to another episode in our series of irregular podcasts run by the editorial board of Prometheus, a journal for socialism and democracy. My name's Edmund Potts, I'm joined today by Chris Strafford and Rida Vakas, and as guests on this episode we invited on Lucy and Ephraim from the Platypus Affiliated Society. They're going to talk with us today about Corbynism, the Labour Party, and addressing the big question – Is the left dead? So thanks very much for coming on, uh, both of you. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves?
1: Okay, so uh, my name's Ephraim. Um, I've been a member of Platypus since 2015. um, And I'm based in London. And I've written for the Platypus Review about the relationship between the Labour Party and the left. Yeah. And My
2: name's Lucy um i first joined platypus in well i met platypus in 2008 september 2008 when i uh went to do a masters in um chicago and uh i was in touch with them for a few years and joined in uh 2011 uh spring 2011 and um, when I came back to the UK after my studies, I um, thought that the kind of questions that Platypus was raising were ones that um, uh, I thought needed to be kind of raised in, uh, amongst the left in Britain as well. So I, with a cu- couple of other Platypus members, um, helped to set up Platypus UK, Platypus London, Platypus started in two thousand and six. It was um, a a student project, and it's sort of always been organised on campuses, um, as uh, in student societies on campuses. Um, And it was really a response um, uh, amongst a, a group of students and uh a, a couple of their teachers at the time uh to the anti-war movement uh the Iraq anti-war movement um that had kind of occurred 2003-2006 um and it was sort of a, a response to that um and uh a kind of attempting to address um the question of the left per se which we can get into in more detail but um it's always been uh, a project for um education and um criticism as opposed to self-criticism as opposed to um an activist project um uh and is is really um yeah about um i i guess we would say we we are um part of a division of labour amongst what it would mean to reconstitute the Marxian left, but um, Platypus's project per se is an educative one and about asking questions as to what it means to be on the left today. So uh, there was sort of a sense of um, something lacking in the uh, anti-war movement in terms of kind of uh, self-reflection on the kind of activism and ideas being raised and we needed to kind of um, ask certain questions that weren't being asked at that time.
0: That's great yeah thanks for that. Um, So I mean it's well it's interesting to hear about um, it being a response to the anti-war movement in in America as well Um, because obviously the anti-war movement was a was a big thing here in the UK, and uh, I guess one way of thinking about the the rise of Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party is part of the sort of long tail of of the the legs of the anti-war movement, um, and and so I think that's a good place to start, really, um, because when in 2015 when Corbyn won the leadership, I mean there was suddenly. I think in, in, by any measure, more people involved in left-wing politics, um, in that moment and and around that campaign than there have been for, well, several decades, you know, we can, we can talk about, um, how far it goes back, um, but at least, you know, back to the anti-war movement. So uh, I wanted to just kick off and kind of ask why, why we think that this resurgence happened, um, why it happened when it did and, and why it, it took the form of people joining um, or associating themselves and identifying themselves with with the Labour Party and in particular, the Labour left around the Corbyn leadership campaign. Why don't you kick off, Ephraim?
1: I was just gonna say, first of all, I'd obviously question the characterization of a resurgence. Um, I think, um, you know, Rosa Luxemburg has a wonderful line somewhere about policeman's materialism which simply counts numbers, um, right? And and thinks about the relationship of forces in terms of, in in, in kind of pure number terms and not really what the content is. Um, I think, so that's the first thing I would say. Um, The second issue I would raise is a kind of um, broader question of the crisis of neoliberalism. Um, And that's something we've tracked in Platypus um, through a rise of neo social democratic politics before the Corbyn turn, um, through our chapters in Greece um, with the Syriza experience, um, as well as in Germany with Delinka. Um, and I think um, the kind of political crisis that, that began to emerge then following the financial crisis of of 2007-2008, kind of reached back to what seemed to be pre-neoliberal forms of politics. So a kind of nostalgia for the welfare state, um, for certain forms of trade unionism, Um, but I think we should remember that that was already kind of an active part of the millennial left's imagination around the Obama election in 2008 that with Obama people, there was already the discussion of a new New Deal. Um, And so there's actually kind of some continuity there. Um, And so I think, you know, the the crisis um, of the political forms in the kind of crisis of neoliberalism um, did lead to a kind of defence of the welfare state, let's say, or kind of, I mean, there there are various tr- threads that I would kind of, maybe Lucy can say something about this. There are various threads that kind of carry through from the history of the millennial left up to this neo-social democratic turn. So you pointed out the m- kind of main arch being the kind of anti-war movement to Corbyn and that there's kind of a strange thread there. Um, but another one would be anti-austerity. Um, and how that kind of um, actually leads in some way to a kind of knee-jerk anti-Toryism and to a belief in whatever the Labour Party puts forward is going to somehow be better um, in the kind of after 2010. Um, Lucy, I know that's kind of an important thread in the millennial left in the UK
2: yeah, I mean, I think it has been in the US as well. I mean, I was, I, I was also just thinking about the the kind of fallout now of of the um, people involved in the Corbyn movement and the kind of turn to community organising in in and housing activism. And um, I remember there also being talk of that um, actually as Occupy, as the Occupy movement was winding down. So there's, um, I think, yes, as Ephraim says, several threads that kind of fed into this trajectory of the millennial left in the present. And and um, the, you know, there was a, also a sense, I think in the US of um, frust- frustration after the Occupy movement that fed into a kind of turn towards questions of electoral politics, um, Mm -hmm. uh, either around the Sanders campaign or uh, more recently, involvement in the DSA. Um, uh, In terms of uh, the overarching question of the millennial left, um, uh, in Platypus we had an article um, back in 2016 actually. Um, around the time that Trump uh, was elected, um, uh, Chris Catrone, the founder of Platypus, wrote um, a, an article on the death of the millennial left, um, which was trying to chart some of um, so some of that history that that the millennial left has kind of been swept up in um, from the anti-war movement um, onwards, and. Um, in a sense uh uh the there's this phrase that um walter benjamin uh has about um historical memory like flashing up um at its moment of kind of um disappearance and i I almost wonder if the excitement around corbinism uh might itself in, in its kind of Highest pitch when many may have seen a kind of resurgence on the left um, was actually a moment of um, the millennial left's kind of full disintegration. At the same time as kind of um, kind of uh, embodying its kind of own memory, Um, and I think uh, so. Yes, you had the the questions raised by the anti-war movement and um and then the anti-austerity movement I think the what we've tried to look at in platypus is th- the way in which um his historical memory on the left and really when we're talking about the left we're talking about um ideas um uh rather than like activism per se so the question of like uh, the left at the level of I- ideas, um, in terms of um, the kind of project of, of human freedom and um, uh, the, the possibility for a kind of um, a, a real transformation in society to occur. So when, at the level of ideas, um, when we're talking about the death of the left, I would say it's, it's, it's been about um, trying to work through how that death has occurred and how it is bound up with um, a failure to kind of digest its, its own history. Um, so that's why we in Platypus have talked about how um, there are kind of undigested problems in the history of the left both from the old and the new and the post-political. And there's a way in which the anti-war movement, um, when we were first looking at it, some of the first texts we were kind of reading together were from the new left. Um, and the kind of, um, there was this sort of sense of looking, looking back uh, to the new left in, in the anti-war movement, which um, was a kind of both a problem For us and an opportunity, Um, and I think um, there's a sense in which um, we still haven't really like the kind of political imagination of um, the millennial left um, itself um, in the anti-war movement was um, produced by kind of uh, 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 the legacy of 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 these. uh of these failures and and kind of failures to address uh the anti-war movement um the sorry the um the new left the new left Hmm. so yeah it's a like corbinism might is a kind of bound up with a, a lot of different things and um uh Yeah, I don't know if framed do you want to say more?
1: Sorry. <laughs> I I would just add like a, a couple of sm- smaller points. Um, first of all, one thing that you'll read, like, like, for example, in the Weekly Worker is that Corbyn was like an accident and that it was because of um, so-called idiot Labour centrists who just put him on the ballot basically for a, like, why not give him a go and didn't realise what would happen. Um, and the reason why we emphasize this, like it's kind of a history of the millennial left and actually a longer turn towards ne- neo-social democracy that predates Corbyn is to kind of question that narrative. Um, the other thing I would say is, yeah, I, I completely agree with Lucy that in fact, Corbynism perhaps even represents a lowering of horizons for the millennials. And you can see that actually in Um, what the trajectory of of that kind of anti-war movement coalition was, because you've got on the one hand Corbyn and then you've got Lindsay German and John Rees from the SWP. And in any kind of basic formulation at the time, you would have said that the SWP was to the left of Corbyn. Now, however bad the SWP was as a political organisation is like, put that to one side for a moment. Um, And what's happened is, is that... The SWP has been liquidated and everyone became a Corbyn supporter, right? So that's a clear shift to the right, um, just in the terms of the anti-war movement itself. Um, Right, that actually what was partially interesting about the anti-war movement was that it raised the question of Marxism, specifically Marxist or self-described Marxist organizations um, were on the ground again. Um, and actually leading the movement in some way, that's totally disappeared. Um, And that's a kind of, um, in some ways, you know, millennials like to think that they've overcome sectarianism um, and resulting in the liquidation of those organizations, they might actually have fallen below it um, and just not even attained to the level at which the problem of sectarianism emerges. Um, so you know, I, it's you know the kind of mushy big tent of Corbynism, basically, where you don't have to think
0: about ideological questions or ideological differences and so on. I think that's a really important point, and I'm going to ask um, Chris to come in on that in a second because uh, it's the subject of uh, a couple of his recent articles. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting, also, what um, Lucy was saying about. The failure of an Im- of imagination and and the sort of limits to the horizons of these various movements, um, because what sprang to my mind also when anti austerity was mentioned was the the German experience um, of having a, a left split from the Social Democratic Party um, it, it, in response to their embrace of, of the Agenda twenty ten austerity program, um, uh, which which then of course went on to unify with the uh, the um, PDS which was the successor of the former East German ruling party and uh, while that created a quite quite an effective um, organization in Linke in, in some respects um it's very it seems to have really reached a high watermark. i mean both politically in the sense that they can't pose anything beyond the sort of return to what they call like a social uh, e- economy um but also, just in terms of strength you know they they're, they're really not able to sort of break through um you know a, a threshold of you know between fifteen and twenty percent of of the vote across the country as a whole um and and I think that that's a really important kind of lesson because uh as ifphra was saying as well you know it's it it, it predates Corbynism and uh, and it perhaps shows the extent to which this is less a, a unique phenomenon more a kind of reflection of uh, what's happening in response to um, developments in capitalism and, and the turn towards austerity politics of the last 20 years or so? Um, can, I, can I
1: just add something on that about Dilinka? Because I think it's another point that has some commonalities with um, Corbynism, which is that um, you have that period kind of 2010 to 2015, which seems like a kind of growth in those phenomena. Um, But what happens with the crisis of neoliberalism, which is really expressed as a crisis of the European Union, um, as well as a crisis of the other established political parties, um, is that the the politics of those kind of left social democratic things was really geared around a kind of anti-neoliberalism. And when neoliberalism, in its political forms began to basically splinter and crack, they were totally kind of um, left in the dirt. They split over various issues and they couldn't actually work out how to reorient themselves and actually ended up supporting the kind aspects of the neoliberal parties that they'd claimed to oppose. Um, Brexit is the most obvious example here in the UK but also the Trump phenomenon um, in the US where you just had the left supporting Joe Biden um, in the election. Um, So I think that a kind of a common trend is that what ties that kind of millennial left period together is anti-neoliberal politics. And what was discovered in 2016 were the deep limitations of that. Um, both with respect to trying to grasp capitalist society and with respect to being able to um, uh, manoeuvre in relation to political changes. So they were kind of blindsided by the change and actually it was quite easy for right-wing parties to become anti-neoliberal in a way that they couldn't have imagined um, in you know, 2010. Yeah, and the absolutely. thing
2: is that now you have the left um defending neoliberalism uh, as opposed to um, uh, actually offering any kind of alternative, Um, so there's I think also bound up with this moment uh, an inability for the left to actually register the change in society that's been happening anyway despite despite whatever they might have been doing themselves. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's another way, I guess, in which we could talk about um, regression on the left, That um, uh, yeah, rather, than, rather than a kind of um, being able to even uphold anti-neoliberalism, that they've sort of fallen into defending neoliberalism
0: yeah, to pick up on that point of regression, I mean, I, I wanted uh, Chris, you know, to to talk a bit about that because, um, you know, thinking about in terms of the how most people on on the left as such do their activism uh, and, and how they are politically active, you know, and, and the transition from being mainly involved in more diffuse movements to, so let's say, in, in the British context, everyone joining the Labour Party. Um, Chris, what, what, what do you think about that? Do, is it right to think about it as a, as a regression or, or a sort of move sideways or, or, or a move up in, in some way?
3: I think Corbyn with the, the Corbyn phenomenon in Britain at least was, was interesting because it was both a lowering of horizons and also an attempt to gain political power, which, is a, which was a shift from the sequence that we were in from the fall of the Soviet Union, which was protests. So we had the Seattle and the anti-capitalist movement. We had the anti-war movement, which never really posed the question of power. Um, we had anti-austerity, again, never really question, never really gave the left, you know, opportunities to to pose the question of power. And then you come to the Corbyn period, and even the, I suppose, the specter of the of the left coming to, to power was um, was enough to send, you know, the right of the Labour Party. Um, Vast sections of um, the British political class into into a frenzy. So in a sense, it's both, you know, a lowering of horizons in terms of you know the Marxist left tailed the Corbyn project almost entirely. Um, even the ones that said that they weren't doing that did exactly that. And then there's a you know the odd thing w- which was basically Corbynism showed that the politics that were sold as radical were sold as um, you know revolutionary on the streets in the protests and what have you beforehand were basically status quo kind of tinkering around the edges, um, just dressed up with um, radical language. Um, and the, the, one of the failures, obviously, that we are left with is that Corbynism has left us with nothing really, left us with political lessons, but in terms of um, you know, the movement of the, or what have you, you know, there's nothing tangible left is there um, that we can use as um, you spoke about Historical memory and stuff. You know, there was no attempt to rebuild institutions of the left, so that we could rebuild institutional memory, so historical memory could be transferred. We could think about these questions. None of these questions, were, none of these political projects that were needed during um, that time actually came about. And what we've ended up with now is a is a step back from an attempt to gain political power to. You know, movementism again. You know, um, the Labour Party is finished again. The Labour Party is dead again. We can all see this. Uh, you know, people who were only a few months ago uh, peddling um, Labour Party leaflets um, during the election um, are now saying it's over. You know, we should be back out on the streets protesting against austerity cuts, the usual, what have you. So, yeah, I think. Corbyn is in that sequence that you've discussed internationally, but he's also kind of like a break in that sequence. It was the the left attempting, or at least trying to at least think about um, what it would mean to come to power, what our programme would be if we came to power, and it fell well short of what was needed. What we ended up with was a defence of the status quo, um, which was, again, unsurprising. And I think Brexit has been, again, has that... Has, has that dual character is both for the defense of the status quo but also the anti neoliberal right you know getting a, like stealing a march on the left so you have you know vast numbers of the left um, and its organizations you know basically lining up with the city of london you know um, with the liberal wings of the, of the the Tory party um with the you know the moderates or whatever you whatever they want to call them themselves of the Labour Party against, you know, um, Brexit. So in all of those, the left rarely manages to put forward its own programme. And the Iraq War move- anti-war movement is interesting as well, because even then, when the left was in the driving seat of the anti-war movement, we could say over and over to the SWP or to the Socialist Party or whoever, you know, you should raise political demands, you should raise constitutional demands, you should demand that the, you know work should be stopped in arms industries and all these kind of things and what have you. Of course, the SDP's, you know, limit was the Liberal Democrats. We can only take the anti-war movement as far as the Liberal Democrats. Otherwise, you can't have Liberal Democrat speakers, you can't have imams, you can't have, you know, um, archbishops, you know, on the platform with you. So then we, you know, the anti-war did, I think, provide the left with an opportunity to to think and to reorganize and it utterly failed in those tasks. We we, we can see that now. And I think same with the Corbyn um, project. It has left us nowhere, really, um, though, to be fair to you, many comrades who are fighting against, you know, political censorship and what have you in in the Labour Party right now, you know, they are in a horrendous situation um, don't envy them at all.
2: I think I mean there's I think there is a kind of there's two aspects to the problem of the Labour Party there's there's a question of um uh because and and I feel like the millennial left has um, well I mean it's something I wanted to ask you Chris really because I known you for a few years and um i remember the kind of debates when i first was sort of attending communist university um uh summer events in like 2011 2012 when i think you were having a debate basically with the leadership of Mm. pgb about um about how to orientate towards the labor party and the question then was around around like how to whether whether to endorse certain Labour Party candidates I think but but also you know what um how how and this was obviously like uh pre pre Miliband like um uh yeah. and you know then I remember you uh, you know because I had attended that with a couple of other platinumist members and we recognise then that um, uh, okay, um, we, were, we were just talking about ourselves. So, so obviously, the Labour Party is a is a big question for the British left. It's there. It's this manifest phenomenon that has to be kind of dealt with. Um, mm. uh, but I, I just wonder about your own trajectory with with that question, um, and um, I guess. I guess there's a the question of is is both like how how do you address it? But um, this sense of getting uh, also getting completely kind of that, that there's a sense of both the, the millennials having got completely kind of stuck in the mire with this with with kind of um, the Labour Party now, um, but that you know it it raises questions both about what the Labour Party is now, um, in you know, post Corbyn, um, versus what it was before. And I think some of Ephraim's articles, um, kind of push on on two sides: sort of, has the Labour has there really been change in the Labour Party? What was the new, was there anything new really about Corbynism compared to, um, you know, the deep, its deep history? Um, hmm. And um, uh think, you know, thinking about the the deep history of kind of leftist ideas in the UK, there's a quest, you know, has it, has it been an, op- is it an opportunity um, for leftist politics? Or is it, or is it just in some way a kind of like um, an obstacle or an ideological obstacle um, that the left needs to work through in order to kind of like move forward seems like it's sort of. uh, At at various points during its history, there's been this idea of it, of of it presenting an opportunity. Um, And I I myself am not, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I can't, you know, I couldn't completely rule out that, 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 you know, there could be some movement to come out of the Labour Party, but I, I'm also, skept- I guess, skeptical about that. And and I think if, if what Ephraim if was raising in his articles was was about that deeper history and the kind of um, anti-Marxism of the Labour Party going all the way back.
3: Yeah, I think I, lots of questions to, to think on that. And I think I pretty much ended up in the same Unsure, um, which I think is a, is a maybe a positive unsure um, position. Um, I think Corbyn was slightly different to other earlier examples of the left, um, you know, resurgences and what have you. But I think the difference was the class basis. The difference was the lack of a class basis, the lack of um, support among the working class, the lack of um, excitement in working class bodies because those working class bodies don't exist really anymore. Um, You don't see an upsurge in um, workers joining their trade unions, workers being involved in um, you know local community-based organizations like tenants organizations or whatever campaigns you know. It came, you know, the the resurgence came from young people, millennials, whatever, um, joining the party for the first time, who may have been involved in anti-cut stuff, may have been um, involved in the student protests. Um, And then you have a large cohort of um, older um, Labour activists that are returning to the party after the, the Blair years. It'd Be interesting to see who stays in the party Over the next few years whether it'll be the younger activists or it will be the uh, older comrades. Um, So I think what Corbynism really lacks I think still I think you you can see with the Labour Party as a whole especially in places like Scotland Um, you saw it with the elections in the north Um, it lacks any substantial class support it has a has a residual um, base Um, and even Corbyn
1: Yeah, go ahead. I just jump in on a couple of those points because I think I think we should get into this question that Lucy raised of like the the deeper history of the nature of the Labour Party as a question for the left in the UK. Um, But first of all, I I would just say like I'm really sceptical of this idea that Corbynism posed the question of power like in any socialist sense, it absolutely did not even raise the question. Um, The question that was raised was, would Labour win an election? That's not the question of power from a socialist perspective, um, let alone a Marxist perspective. Um, And I think that, you know, I'm no uh, endorser of a kind of you know, out in the streets, movementism, protest every Sunday kind of politics. Um, but uh, the the sense in the millennial left that they managed to progress from protest to politics um, to the question of power might be misleading. It might actually obscure what the question of power is for the left. Um, and, um, you know, the, the the antinomy of movementism and electoralism um, is the one that has kind of dogged the left since the 60s, or maybe even really since the 30s. Um, and the question we'd have to ask is not kind of one or the other, but... Rather, how do you overcome that antinomy? Um, And I think you know what what has been kind of um, liquidated in that process is actually the memory of how how these questions were even posed in the past. Um, So there's a kind of gradual shifting of of the of the question. So, for example. Um, If you look at the way someone like Ralph Miliband talked about the question of um, power for the Labour Party, um, looking back on the kind of first half of the 20th century, it was very, you know, and even he was really just hoping for a kind of true reformism, right, a reformism that would actually follow through on its programme. Um, against what he called the new revisionism in the sixties, um, but the question has kind of shifted even again since then. Such that now the question of power, which has the which like has that kind of um, has a theoretical ring to it, um, it became about winning an election. And um that's a lowering of horizons and a kind of forgetting of how questions were previously formulated on the left.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean it posed the question of governmental power, pose the question of um winning an election. Um you pose you know, Corbynism wanted to come to power on a on a social democratic platform. It was not a question of the working class coming to power. So you're absolutely right on that. I don't have any disagreement with you. Um, What I would say, unlike the protest movements, which it rose from and fed from, it had the idea that it would take office, had the idea that it would enact a programme of sorts. Um, It would not be the working class coming to power or whoever. It would be the Labour Party, Acting social reforms um and for you know if we're still talking about that sequence in the run-up to Corbynism that is a that is a break from that because those protest movements never posed um the possibility of winning an election um
2: it's just strange though because I, I was just thinking about the the left over the last few years and I remember uh before Syriza took office in, in greece uh organizing a panel uh with a member of syriza and um a german activist and a, a member of the cpgv in the uk um and um uh the the kind of cpgv's line at that point uh was um you know if you win the election don't take power mm-hmm. um so I kind of, I I even, even, um, um, yeah, I think if Frank's right, that there's this kind of, that there's a kind of misunderstanding of, 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 uh, you know, winning an election um, versus political, like the idea of political power, but also even on those terms, it's kind of um, the left seems diminished I suppose I mean yes. what, what I suppose the idea was that that would somehow pose um I actually I, I don't know do you have a sense of what the CPG was saying was arguing for there
3: well, I I think it's confused isn't it I mean in terms of you know if you say to Saritza who are standing for government office on a reform program which basically against the bailout conditions imposed on them by the IMF and European Central Bank, but then you say you don't take power. Like, okay, formally in terms of if you consider Syriza a workers' party with a Marxist program or something there or thereabouts, then you would say the working class party, the workers' party, should not come to power until it has a social majority, until it can, uh, you know, actually enact a, a full program, um, what have you. Which um, apply that rule to Syriza or to the Labour Party um, is, 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 a, is a confused kind of nonsensical thing because Corbynism, you know, Corbyn was not standing on socialisation of production, was not standing on the dissolution of the army, what have you. Um, Corbyn was standing on some very wild reforms, probably would have been very welcome reforms, you know, in the light of where we are at the moment. Um, but fundamentally, to say to a party that is not posing... Um, social revolution not posing um, the working class coming to power but don't take governmental office Um, is is to confuse advice for an actual workers party with what we have today which is the Labour Party, social democratic parties or these new new Mm -hmm. left parties um, in Europe you know Syriza, De Linka, Podemos you know Podemos being the running dogs for the Socialist Party in Spain at the moment you know of course they should never have entered that government with their whole program and the whole trajectory from the the early protest movements in which they came out from was always going to be um, we're going to enter um, office we're going to become millerandists and what have you they didn't even I think that they were going to be yeah go ahead I think
1: this is an interesting point because it gets um, a important platypus point about what the left is in its death because obviously it's for a moment i will defend the contradictoriness of like the cpgb line there um of course the cpgb is not giving advice to anyone and no one is listening right cereza is not listening to them jeremy corbyn's not listening to them right so what are they doing when they say things like that they're trying to uphold some kind of historical memory, right? They're performing a kind of education function on the history of the left to a small group of young people or old people, as the case may be, who are kind of interested in what those ideas once meant. And so when they say things like, if Syriza wins the election, it shouldn't take power, um, then What they're really trying to do is like raise the spectre of like what used to be thought on the left with respect to Marxist parties or socialist parties. Um, And the problem there is that in doing so, they create all kinds of illusions, as you were saying, Chris, in what the nature of contemporary politics is, in what the nature of contemporary political parties is. But there's a danger that in pointing out that contradiction and saying, "Well, therefore we shouldn't uphold that piece of advice," then you just lose the historical memory and relate to the present as it is. Mm. Um, and not- the the whole the whole conception of the relationship, i.e., of advice, right? That. The left is constantly advising the Labour Party. That's already part of the problem. Um, so I think that that kind of contradiction there gets to this interesting point about the fact that the left is dead politically, but it conceives it, what it actually does is miseducate people, um, both in terms of what the, the meaning of the present and the meaning of history in its attempt to kind of uphold history in the present. And what Platypus does is to try and um, really provoke those symptoms and say, are you really upholding that history here? Is that even possible? Um, so, for example, with the Labour Party, um, the in the the Labour Party Marxists, which was the CPGB front in the Labour Party, um, they you know would talk about Lenin's, Lenin's position on the Bourgeois Workers' Party. Right, and um, they published an article saying that with Corbyn there's a new contradiction. Instead of having a kind of two-way split like a, board, a workers party with bourgeois leadership, you now have um, a left leadership and a left base with a bourgeois PLP in the middle. Right? It's this highly convoluted attempt to make Lenin apply to the present. Now, on the one hand, the attempt to uphold some kind of historical memory there is important. On the other hand, it's it totally miseducates people about what the present situation is and what Lenin was saying, right? Because it, it really actually uh botches uh Lenin's point in the first place. So Platypus is about recognizing that gap between history and the and the present. Um in that sense.
0: I think that's a that's a really in, important point as well and and I think you, you're right trying to sort of defend the impulse behind uh, some of what the CPTB were, were saying in terms of don't take power but it you know I, I have to agree with with Chris that it, it strikes me as a nonsensical way of opposing it um, when when really you have to start a bit further back and you have to say well uh, of course we want to campaign uh, and, and win the support of a majority of people in society, but not on this program. Um, you know, we're we're winning. If we win an election, we've won a majority for the wrong program. Um, and and I think that that's an important kind of missing piece of the puzzle. Uh, you know, the, the 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 minimum program, which you know, which of course groups like CPGB and 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 I think we or or, or you know Chris and and Rita and I kind of support that that kind of basic idea. Um, of there being conditions on which you you know uh, a Marxist left a Marxist party would would want to take power. Um, I wanted to just hear from Rida as well, just uh, as uh, someone who has actually been in the Labour Party quite a long time and and uh, been on on the National Committee of Young Labour. I think like what what what, what thinks about all this.
4: I I think that. Um... The Corbyn, the Corbyn leadership kind of posed this very interesting problem of you have a lot of people who are committed socialists trying to impose or cohere some form of socialist strategy upon a movement that wasn't really very interested in it. Um, and not there wasn't really actually, I think, any sort of taking stock of why we've kind of we ha- we had a sort of weird period of you have a lot of like we, we have a lot of generals on the sort of Labour left who all kind of theorise of how can we make the Labour Party socialist, um, but you don't really actually have any sort of base or any um any kind of people who are going to do the sort of like committed routine like party work that you need to do to actually like build a coherent socialist movement within the Labour Party. But I also kind of wanted to respond about the point about um, miseducation, because I think um, in terms of a lot of the sort of celebrity figures of the left, they are sort of responsible for like propagating very sort of pernicious forms of miseducation. Like you see extreme, <laughs> you see like completely ridiculous things about like, this is how we can like stop the rise of fascism if we copy like the socialists in Weimar from like Paul Mason or something. And it's like, firstly, they quite clearly didn't. Um, And secondly, like, what does it mean to use the term fascism like in such a sort of loose and ill-defined way? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the sort of like the vast majority of the sort of like Corbyn movement had a lot of illusions about the history of the Labour Party, a lot of illusions about the history of the Labour Party left. and there wasn't really any like serious educational effort to like dispel these illusions or to actually um recover the past in a meaningful and critical way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of um a passage in Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism, which I just kind of came back across this morning, where he kind of talks about how um, in nineteen sixty there's a myth of the 30s and that people were um people were kind of narrating the history of labor in the 30s as this like really radical turn a renaissance of its socialist politics and that people in the 60s were pining for the causes of unemployment and fascism you know would that we had such causes he says Um, that might inspire a radical turn for us. And Miliband says, the evidence shows all of this to be very dubious history. The experience of 1931 did not cause any major transformation in the Labour Party, nor did mass unemployment, nor did fascism. Um, So I I think that really resonates with what you were just saying, Rita, and and also that, that point about forgetting the history. Like, left-wing intellectuals, let's say, and left-wing activists have been through these problems several times in the 20th century and they've thought about it with much greater clarity than anyone is thinking about it today. And what's depressing, I guess, is that um, those figures from the past are kind of bandied about um without any of their critical purchase being registered, right? They're kind of um all the all the thorny bits are smoothed over to make them fit um whatever it is we're doing in the present. And Ralph Miliband's not even that thorny. I mean he's a kind of left reformist.
3: Yeah and I, I mean Following on from dreamy-eyed views of the 30s would be 45, yeah. You know, which the left holds on to as the is the is the golden goose, the, you know, um, for revival of labourism in Britain. And uh, you know, 45 was Major Atley. It wasn't a left, you know, um, resurgence. That you know, it was not um, a great socialist awakening. I mean, the reason why the Labour Party then lost the next election because labour was committed to austerity and we're, mm-hmm. still, we're still dragging its heels in terms of demobilizing troops um, in parts of the empire or parts of the crumbling empire. Um, so then we had the Tory government who then came on and carried out the social um, reforms that we all celebrate as victories from 45. You know, great housing projects, you know, the NHS, all were embedded in um, British society under the the Tory government, um, not necessarily under Major Attlee's government. So I think there's um, there's always a lack of memory or, or you know a skewed memory when it comes to um, the Labour Party and the left. Um, and consistently, you know, even on, even with Ben and what have you, you know, he, he only became acceptable um, when he was completely disarmed, completely, um, you know, the nice old granddad of socialism. Um, of, of the British Labour Party. Um, but even yeah. then, his his, his um, deputy leadership campaign, you know, essentially a, d- a defence of the status quo was a defence of the post-war settlements. Um, whereas everybody else could see, you know, things were changing. Uh, the working class was changing. The nature of work was changing. The things that people wanted in their lives, you know, had, had, had changed. And, you um, and a lot of the left who then rebuilt Corbynism or what have you you know still hark back to that you know full employment industrial Britain all this kind of stuff as if these are kind of left-wing Well, um, as if it's our program basically as if it's something to positive to to, to bring back
0: yeah I, I, I think the point about um, the uh the, the, the Tories having implemented a lot of these reforms is, is, is something that uh, I, I remember um, Ephraim seized on in, in one of his articles on on this, you know, that uh, the, the, there was a quote about how, you know, the Labour Party under Gatesgill didn't, just couldn't comprehend that um, people would vote for the Tories to implement these reforms in, instead of the Labour Party to implement these reforms. So uh, I, I think that's really crucial as well. Um, it, it, it reminds me also in terms of... Um, you know, just completely misremembering the history of, of, uh, well, especially that this period, you know, the sort of post forty five period, but also generally, um, how, how Rida has commented on, uh, in the past on, um, people wanting to identify as anti-racists. And so by extension saying the Labour party has always been an anti-racist party, um, which is just a completely ludicrous position to have, um, it, it by any measure, um, i I what to do just, you mean by that well in, in terms of what what people say in terms of the anti racism i mean you know racism was obviously quite a pervasive view um in in lots of the labor movements um the the atley government you know to which people um kind of look back um you know had obviously the the positions on international politics which would be complete anathema to yeah, anyone who considers themselves anti-imperialist today um and and uh, i mean that sort of thing but perhaps rigor has posed it slightly better than me um I, I i just want to to throw in one kind of point and and we don't have to spend too long discussing it but i thought it was quite interesting um about loyalty to the the british state and the constitution um because it it it, it does one thing that I can't quite sort of get away from is the idea that perhaps some of the kind of the particularly intense and vituperative hostility to the Corbyn-McDonald leadership of the Labour Party was because although they weren't in any way consistent um, uh, consistent enemies of, of the British state order and, you know, obviously wanted more police, you know, dropped their pledges to get out of NATO, dropped their pledges to get rid of the monarchy. All of that just went out the window as soon as they kind of attained leadership of the party, so they weren't consistent in any way uh, and certainly didn't hold kind of Marxist positions on those things. Um, but their past and, and their history of supporting um, supporting Irish Republicanism, uh, calling for the abolition of the monarchy, calling to get out of NATO, NATO McDonald saying disband MI5, all, all of this was, you know, a, a kind of spectre in the background. Um, and I, I guess I just wanted to kind of pose that as, as, as a question is, is that the, is that the kind of um, the ceiling against which a, a, a social democratic left can kind of run up against that the ruling class will kind of tolerate people like Corbyn under certain circumstances to come in and manage the state for a bit and implement reforms. But when it comes to any hint of disloyalty to the constitution that they, they, they just can't accept that.
3: I don't think they would ever tolerate someone like Corbyn coming in. He, he's completely, um, they can't trust him, basically. His, his lifetime of work with Palestinians, with the anti-war movements and what have you, makes him a really bad safe of ha- pair of safe hands for them to to even bet on. So even if Labour were to win an election under those kind of um you know, the Corbyn programs and what have you. It would never be Corbyn that would um, be allowed to take office.
1: I think that's one of the main ways in which illusions in Corbynism are perpetuated. Um, I think the question of constitutionalism should rather be posed with respect to um, like what would a socialist party raise about those questions. Um, There always have been and always will be um, Uh, Republican, anti-imperialist, anti-deep state, let's say with MI5 positions which are Liberal positions um, in British politics and they're represented in a kind of peculiarly historically mediated way in the Labour Party um, by Corbyn's kind of politics. Um, But I think, you know, the, the whole, you know, maybe they would never let Corbyn take power, but that led to some really ridiculous things. Um, for example, in the CPGB, were raising about the prospect of a Pinochet style coup, if Corbyn won an election. Now that's just like fantasy mongering. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I don't know what, you know, the British state allows, but clearly one of the things, as Edmund just pointed out, that that I noticed in the article about the 1959 election is that things which the left thinks the British state will never allow, it turns out to be possible to implement from the right. And that shocks the left and what happens when they get shocked by that is they retreat into a kind of saying well they would never have let our guy do it and it's because you know he he held this and that position or something like that um so don't be surprised by you know the changes that capitalist politics could take um i think obviously the cpgb again this is they're kind of coming up a lot but it's kind of a, um, let's say a symptom on the left that all of us have engaged with in in some way. Um, raise this issue of republicanism and constitutionalism, um, quite prominently. Um, and yeah, I would say, I mean, one thing I pointed out in one of my articles is the way in which, um, the emergence of the Labour Party around the question of House of Lords reform um, in nineteen eleven um, does create a kind of illusion of democratic reform through the Labour Party, um, and that um, you know there's a there's a famous poster of um, Labour um, Labour leads the way or something where it's you know, workers smashing through the doors of the House of Lords. It was actually part of the Liberal programme because the House of Lords was blocking their reform agenda um, at the time and Labour was kind of the junior partner in the coalition um, of Liberal votes in the two elections of 1911. Um, So, yeah, I think there are kind of various risks there. The other one is that the question of socialism gets reduced to the question of democracy. Um, so obviously, you know, a socialist party would be opposed to the House of Lords and the monarchy and and all the rest of it, but it would have, you know, it would have a democratic programme. But there's a way in which um, that the question can be reduced to that, um, in, to a certain extent.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair to weekly work, I mean, there were reports in the Telegraph and what have you from uh, serving or ex-serving generals that said we would never allow this guy to order us around basically. So there there is a, a grain of, of truth behind um, what the British state would, or what sections of the British state would do in terms of a government that they thought was uh, unacceptable. Um, but the reality is, you know, even even winning that election in twenty nineteen or twenty seventeen, Corbyn would not have taken office. Um, it'd more likely be somebody else in the in the Labour Party that would be asked to form a government. Um,
1: I'm just reminded of like you know in the twenties when Ramsay MacDonald was prime minister and. He was attending meetings where people were singing the Internationale and calling for the King's head. Right. And then he then had to go to ministerial meetings and say, look, I just had, I I couldn't object at the time because the mob basically would have overrun me. But of course, like, you know, that, um, that's not, you know, we're not going to push that far at the moment. Um, and so again, I think like. Corbyn's, you know, republicanism is really milk toast compared to even figures in the history of the Labour Party um before the Second World War. Um and the other thing I would say is like that kind, you know, I mean the the ridiculousness of the of several of the kind of anti-Semitism stings. Um has no end. But one of them was that people had discovered that Corbyn wrote an introduction once to um, Hobson's book on imperialism. Um, And uh, Hobson entertained several kind of anti-Semitic theories about the Boer War, um, which were very common at the time. Um, but also because Hobson is cited so heavily by Lenin in his imperialist book, this was kind of seen as evidence that Corbyn is some kind of, you know, Leninist. Um, but I think what it really showed is that um, Corbyn has a kind of liberal Little Englandism um, that is anti imperialist, right? We have to remember that, um, you know, liberalism has an anti imperialist politics in Britain and the crisis of the Liberal Party between 1890 and let's say 1920, which is what Labour kind of ends up being the successor to, is around the question of imperialism. Um, so, you know, the, the the issue of what why socialist politics in the Second International were not the same as that kind of liberalism is really obscure to people now.
0: Yeah, Lucy, were you gonna jump in there?
2: Um, yeah, I, I guess there's a couple of things that it it also, this conversation raises for me, just to go back in terms of this this idea of um, the, the Tories enacting uh, reforms that, you know, Labour has not found possible, um, the extent to which the left has been able to address that and have been able to address working-class support for, for Toryism per se, um, but also, yeah, this question, I, I, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, one of the first questions that we were trying to raise in Platypus was, what is imperialism? Um, which at the time in the anti-war movement, even asking that question um, was seen as as like traitorous um, to even ask it. but the question of what um, the relationship between what what Marxists historically meant by imperialism versus how the left understands imperialism and anti-imperial, its own anti-imperialism today is, is very obscure. And so, um, yeah, okay, there's a sense of, um, oh, the British state wouldn't allow Corbyn, and Corbyn's our guy because he's an anti-imperialist. What, what is the character of his anti-imperialism, really? Mm. Um, does, does need to be questioned, and, and the character of anti-imperialism on the left more broadly, um, for Platypus that, that was never like, I, I mean, I, that, that's been frequently received as a kind of uh, somehow a kind of like covert imperialism of some kind or like pro-imperialism. But um, we, were, we were trying to just ask that question, you know, what, what is imperialism or what, what did imperialism mean for, for Marxists historically versus um, how it was understood Say, during the anti-war movement, uh, so that Ephraim's, um, I think this, this, this point that Ephraim's raising, you know, got, um, the question of like Hobson um, and liberal anti-imperialism uh, is still kind of pertinent um, to the left to kind of consider today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think that those are all really relevant questions. I mean, the, the thing that I had in my mind um, when, when you were saying that was uh, the uh, I think in the last Labour manifesto. So 2019, um, they they had a, a, a commitment that the UK wouldn't deploy troops abroad unless um, unless it was authorised by the UN. Um, and, and this is, you know, coming from. Corbyn and and richard Bergen and and you know all these people the sort of morning star type politics who see themselves as anti-imperialist and it's like well you know what 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 do you think the un is you know um how does the UN fit in with your anti-imperialism uh which you know i, I mean it's it's a whole question right that you know I, I don't think we've got time for but it's um but it's really really worth interrogating um i i, I thought maybe we would move it along a little bit um in terms of the the, the death of the left and just talk a bit M- maybe um one of you would kind of like to just outline Platypus's, you know in a nutshell like w- what the death of the left means and then we can talk about the left and, and the prospects for a, for a rebirth of a resurgence um how long that might take what sort of forms that might take
2: yeah okay i can i mean i can start i sort of already said a little bit in terms of um,
0: yeah.
2: that the left, we're thinking about the left at the level of ideas, like, an, like the ideological questions that um, the left has historically raised and that there's been a death um, in that sense. Um, uh, I think it was also, um, I think it's important to, I've recognised during my time in Platypus that um, at various moments during the history of the millennial left where movements have died down, whether it's like the aftermath of Occupy or the aftermath of Corbynism, where this idea of the death of the left, um, actually people um, on the left are more willing to kind of um, agree with it. Um, But our point was to raise it actually at the more lively points, in our own history, so we were raising the death of the left at the height of the anti-war movement, um, and we were raising it at the beginning again at the beginning of like the, the Corbyn moment, um, and uh, and at the height of Occupy. So at these moments where like the left considers itself to be kind of like revivifying, we're trying to kind of pose pose that question, um, and it's to do with how uh people who consider themselves left understand what they're doing and understand the world that they live in and i guess um more more broadly there's obviously that kind of historic quote from marx about how you know uh hitherto the socialists have only tried to like or the philosophers have only tried to understand the world the point is to change it um our point is rather um, that if we're no longer able to understand the world that we're living in, how can we possibly change it? And so, um, yeah, it was it was really about understanding and ideas um, that we thought it was important to raise that point. I mean, obviously, there's we can also chart the kind of demise of um, organisations and um, the organised working class as well uh as 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 part of that force in society but um for us uh we've considered it to be important to raise the question of how um how that might actually be bound up with an ideological problem rather than um merely a kind of a, a material <laughs> problem per se, or a kind of a economic problem, like it's it's like um, that there might be ideological obstacles that, that are preventing um, uh, us from from organizing in 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 any meaningful sense, and that's that's what we're seeking to kind of address, is to kind of um, yeah dissolve mm-hmm. those obstacles if at all possible. Um, I think we've always considered what we're doing as quite a, a small part of what would be needed to reconstitute the left, but a necessary one.
1: I would just add um, yeah, the, the point Lucy made that, like, actually everyone on the left accepts the left is dead. Um, they understand it in different ways. And one of the things we're interested in is how they explain that to themselves because that's where they give you their theory of history and that their theory of history is their theory of the present and vice versa so i remember the first time i met reader was when we were invited to give a talk at an awl summer camp and um and uh, they have an old pamphlet from the 90s about how um, the left is Atlantis, it's this lost, buried world, and that they, the AWL, the Marxists, are like the survivors of Atlantis who carry its memory, right? And then the rest of the pamphlet is basically a a history of the left from the 1830s to the present, and it's divided in specific ways. And different people on different positions on the left divide the history in different ways and what we're interested in is what does that tell us about like the present and about history the different ways that the left actually understands itself to be dead um uh, the other thing i would add I, i'll just give like one small example of that from um Uh, a critique of Alain Badiou that Chris Catron published in the Platypus Review, that Alain Badiou divides the history of the left into two um, phases, 1870, uh, sorry, 1793 to 1871 and then 1917 to 1968, right? And that these are supposed to be the, the, like, revolutionary periods and... Uh, what that obviously leaves out is the period between eighteen seventy one and nineteen seventeen, which is the growth of the Second International, and that the fact that he leaves that out tells you something about his theory of what communism is, his theory of why the left went wrong, that he would apportion that to some kind of projection back of social democracy onto the of the twentieth century onto the Second International, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other thing I would say is that the full slogan. We should remember is the left is dead long live the left um and um you know we are as lucy said you know clearing ideological obstacles um towards the reconstitution of the marxian left but the other thing that that slogan raises obviously it comes from you know the king is dead long live the king and what that's what that call implies is the continuity of tradition right, that one specific person has died, but the king continues to live because it's actually this like continuous institution, right, that's passed on through tradition. Uh, What we're pointing out in Platypus is the discontinuity in the left, right, that actually the tradition has been broken, and because of the regression, it's actually not so simple as just picking up where we left off, um that there's been like a real discontinuity there um and that that's something that we need to reckon with so the the way the slogan raises the question of continuity and tradition um is to pose the reality which is um on the one hand there's a discontinuity and on the other hand you know the the um dead generations weigh like a nightmare on the brain of the living Right, we're kind of haunted by this tradition that we can't overcome and just like repeat in this kind of um, undead way. Um, and just just one other thing that Lucy said, raised this issue between, of the difference between ideological obstacles and practical obstacles and, and what the relation might be. Um, in one of the discussions we had about the Labour Party in Platypus, so I brought this up, which is that, Certainly the the role the Labour Party plays today is, is a kind of ideological obstacle on the left. Um, and uh but we could say, like, you know, for Lenin and the early communists in the 1920s, that the Labour Party it wasn't there was an ideological question there, but it was a practical obstacle, right? Like it was a real constituted working class force. With massive trade unions. In a certain sense, the practical obstacle of the Labour Party is like severely diminished, and we should probably celebrate that. The problem is, right, and it's not, so we're not even in the situation that, say, like Trotskyists in the 1950s were. If you think about like the precursors to the Socialist Labour League or, um, you know, with their journal Labour Review in the 50s, they had to. Not only deal with the Labour Party, but with the Communist Party, which was which was quite strong in the trade unions in certain trade unions, that was a major practical obstacle, real living people who exercised like mass support and power that you were trying to win over. Um, that just doesn't exist. What we're left with is the ideological obstacles, the kind of historical historical baggage. Um, and so Platypus is trying to work through that historical baggage.
3: Yeah there's a there's a good um, line from Engels in uh, 1890 which he says in a country with such an old political and labour movement there's always a colossal heap of traditionally inherited rubbish which has to be got rid of by degrees which I suspect sums up what our tasks are really in terms of um, trying to rethink and politically refound, um, the left, Um, uh, there's a,
1: there's a long tradition on the left of saying the left is dead. Actually, this has a real function. The most famous example is Rosa Luxemburg calling the SP day a stinking corpse, but yeah, yeah. that Engels example is also really
3: good. Yeah. Um, I think, um, Just very quickly, uh, should we celebrate that um, whether or not labour and labourism only poses an ideological um, Mm -hmm. question now? I'm not sure. I don't think we should mourn or or celebrate. I think it it is more of a, it's where we are. And I think, go ahead, go ahead, sorry.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's a question of like, um, uh, liability or asset. Yeah. And it's both. It's both. The, the death of the left is a liability and an asset, mm-hmm. right? The fact that we can like declare this means we can attempt to kind of rethink things. Um, but it's also a, a major liability.
3: Yeah. I mean, we've saw, you know, vast numbers sucked into laborism, um, you know, mean in terms of you know the material and ideological question i mean i mean obviously there are are links and what have you the decline of the organized working class changing um work in britain and what have you um all of that has gone down alongside with the decline of the trade unions and trade unionism is the basis of laborism so that that whole arena which the left played in um, which played a part in sometimes a big part like the communist party especially in the you know the electrical unions and what have you mm-hmm. um, in britain it's gone all of that all of that arena has gone now and um but we still then also as you i think you're right we still have those ideological blocks which are laborism which are trade unionism as politics which is a bolshevik um, well, experiments, eighty years of a roadblock, I think is fair to to say mm-hmm. great many lessons from it. We have sixty-eight, we have the, you know, anti austerity movements more recently, which is a much lower political level than both of those. The same with the Seattle protests and what have you, the whole what have you, all of those things still need to be challenged. But the go to response, of course, for the British left is still Labourism. And it's in part because the trade unions, even in their diminished and atrophied state, are still where the left poses all of its energy. Still believes that, or the Labour Party is in it, somehow a um, a workers party because it's linked through the trade unions, mm-hmm. because of it's residual support amongst working class communities and what have you. Um,
1: not not to be too much of a nudnik, but I would say like we should we should be a bit specific about the use of the word laborism because that really, like that's been dead for 60 years. Mm. That was Ralph Miliband's point. Like he wanted laborism, but like it had, it, it, you know, the, the first article in the New Left Review, the first issue in 1960 was the sickness of laborism is the patient dying, like all this stuff. Um, and, so I'm not sure that like the the default on the British left is labourism. It's something much.
3: But the default on the British left, I think, is trade unionism that. as politics. The trade unions think, should run parts of the that. economy. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I,
1: I think it's. I think it's much more. I think it's. It's much more around policy. I think like we have to think about what what a trade union is like the trade unions have become kind of recast as kind of basically ngos yeah um and they're part of this kind of party ngo complex and trade unions are actually geared towards policy making these days um and they seek to really influence labor mps over policy in the way that third sector charities seek to influence policy-making decisions um, in, that, in government. Um, so the way that the left is oriented towards trade union politics or laborism is, uh, I think that it might still have a certain appearance of that, but even what that means has changed greatly since like, uh, I don't know, the, the first half of the 20th century. Where laborism was a kind of ideology opposed to revolutionary socialism, and yeah.
0: I think it's also I think it's also important as well to note the fact that I mean perhaps it, 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 in terms of you know taking other countries into account, the, the UK is slightly unusual in how in terms of how monolithic monolithic our labor movement currently is, right? I mean you know we we still just have basically the TUC uh, as a single you know confederation uh in contrast to other countries where there are where there are multiple different confederations of trade unions and and you know a big kind of function of that i i, I mean i think to a certain extent it's a feedback loop because uh, uh, as you're saying everyone the the you know the, a lot of the the union's goals are to influence uh, and maintain their influence within the labor party uh, and as long as that continues well you know uh, definitely the big two united unison aren't going to Break from the Labour Party because it would leave the, the field clear for for the other one remaining to 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 exercise the most influence within the Labour Party and, and potentially a Labour government uh, if if one were to come in. Um, and, and so I think there's definitely a kind of a feedback loop going on there. Um, but what, what I also wanted to to mention was the um, the exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, so the growth recently in terms of um you know smaller so-called base unions of which i i, I mean i'm actually a member of one um mm. you I, i'm a member of uvw because uh I, I work in law um and legal sector workers united is a is a division of ubw um and so you know clearly there's kind of efforts of um people on the left and people who who want to uh revive a sort of activist and militant trade unionism as opposed to you know what, what what's often called service union and uh, unionism and, and these sorts of things um there's, there's real moves to to generate new organizations new initiatives uh, around that and uh, and it was mentioned right back at the start as well you know the turn of a lot of left-wing activists to uh housing activism you know we've got, obviously we've got london renters union uh, acorn um you know which which seeks to become a community union and I think this, this raises a lot of in, interesting kind of questions about, um, where, uh, uh, uh through, through what infrastructure, um, uh, a, a rebirth of the left could, could feasibly emerge. Definitely in the British context, I don't want to extrapolate too far.
1: I mean, yeah, I, well, a friend of mine was one of the founders of the London Renters Union um and so i saw part of it's like i talked to him a lot about it and i i think you know i have a lot of respect for what they've done but um their explicit goal was uh basically to be bought out by the labor party they wanted um basically it was announced that john McDonnell would give funding to new renters unions basically um, as part of Labour's programme and they were basically positioning themselves to receive this tranche of funding Um, and presumably some of the leading figures would become Labour Party housing policy advisors and they probably will do one day anyway even in a different capacity and then probably in a less auspicious moment. Um, so there is a kind of new union, new unionism, um, and it's very much oriented towards the Labour Party. So, I'm um, I'm not sure how much, um, how much of a break that is. I think the question we're trying to raise is that, however, um, however concrete the practical work is that's done by these unions, they are still led by leftists who continue with certain ideas certain theories to themselves of the meaning of what they're doing. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How is it informed by history? Those are unavoidable questions when you are engaged in any kind of practice. Um, And that the desire to... I think there's a desire to avoid those questions um, because they're kind of nagging doubts that are seen to get in the way of the real work at hand. Um, and so just in that example of like the London Renters Union and the, the hope to get Labour Party funding and basically be incorporated into the Labour Party um, shows that by putting those questions to one side, you there's a certain historical repetition um, you know, the the real tragedy for the failure to found a Socialist Party in the UK in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties was that the new unionism then didn't um kind of merge with the nascent SDF. Well that's one way of thinking about it anyway. Um and it did become uh Labour Party oriented and
0: you know all the
1: yeah. rest of it.
2: I mean, uh, clearly, like there's, there's all sorts of new ways that, you know, people could be organised and um, including in, in terms of labour organising and you've seen new sorts of unions cropping up for things like Deliveroo or whatever, but and, and that's, that's all good and like necessary um, uh, and. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's important to recognise <laughs> that um, there is there is a political character to the work of trade unions. More, pro- you know, and mm-hmm. I it just reminds me of, you know, it's it's a it's a deep question that the the Second International was trying to deal with, which was the relationship. Between, you know, even if even in Germany where you know, the Socialist Party actually formed the unions rather than the other way around, there is this relationship between party and trade unions, and it's not a simple division between, like, economic struggles versus, like, lending them a political character by the, by the, uh, by the political party, but rather there is a politics to trade unionism, um, and we as leftists need to kind of understand understand what that is. Um, uh, so, yeah, and I think what Ephraim is saying about this kind of feeling of being able to avoid those questions by just getting stuck in to doing the work is um, is also a kind of, re- yeah, a repeated problem we've seen on the left.
1: Yeah, definitely coming out of the new left, right. You've got this like turn to industrialize, um, and to industrial action and, you know, leftists who are disoriented after the failures of 68 being like, well, the solution and, and kind of sectarian splitting that, okay, well, we'll, we'll go to the workers, we'll organize new groups, we'll do community organizing as well, um, I think what Lucy's raising, which is important is Marxism, right? Like Marx wasn't just like the guy who was most for the working class or who was the like inventor of socialism or something. He was a critic of all of these things. Um, specifically, he was a critic. He, he observed how they were self-contradictory phenomena of capitalism, right? that um in a certain way the uh it's the workers demands for the value of their labor that reproduces capitalism um and that kind of question of marxism as the question of like how is uh you know way lenin puts it of like trade union consciousness and socialist consciousness or how does this movement point beyond itself and not just reproduce capitalism um there's almost no discussion of that like on the left there and um yeah everyone wants to rebuild the unions sure um but for what
3: And why and why yeah exactly yeah um yeah i think the question on i mean there's a few things here isn't there i mean like in terms of london renters union actually all you know similar type bodies focus mm-hmm. their energies towards the labor party in like kind of an ngo kind of uh way is a uh, it's kind of unsuspri- it's unsurprising when the, uh, there's pretty much no alternative in the way that they can see things. There's no existing Marxist party or other workers' party that they could uh, become part of or exist within. You know, The whole of the left, the whole activist movement um, was heading in one direction. And um, that's another thing we need to account for. Again, is why have all those energies gone straight into the Labour Party, which are basically a cul-de-sac, where they are all been dispersed now and what have you. Um, I think okay. what you were saying is is, is interesting in terms of um, Adorno and actionism. In terms mm-hmm. of you know you know there's a, there's a fierce anti-intellectual um, thread among these uh, projects. You know, get out there, do it, go and do the work. It, it's even more so, I think in um, Occupy. And um, I remember um, I can't remember which book it was. It was the Zizek book, and he says, a, you know constantly being told to go out and do something, do something, do what, do what? And you, mm-hmm. know, you know, and this is what I kind of, where I feel as well in terms of, you know, the constant urgent call for action, whether it's climate change, whether it's policing, whether it's this, that, or the other, whether it's now COVID or whatever, obviously all demand answers, but what are those answers and how are we going to um, come up with a positive solution for them? And they, none of those have ever, almost never, interrogated, never thought about, um, it's going to be Green New Deal, the Labour Party, the DSA, or what have you. Um, and I think suggesting to comrades that this actionism, this this activism, the jumping from one thing to the next, um, you know, really, really, really does have to, to stop um, and we really need to have a broader and deeper consideration of what we need to be
1: it's not necessarily that it needs, needs to stop in a certain sense, but there needs to be a recognition of its way in which it's historically conditioned by a kind of impasse.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, what I mean by it has to stop is the constant move to the next big thing, to the next yeah. action, to the next protest yeah. you know, is a substitute for thinking about where we are.
1: Yeah, and, and what Adorno would say is it's pseudo activity, because it actually doesn't do anything. But what it does is kind of um, simulate the, you know, in the case of the student protests in the 60s, simulate the clash with authority that's not actually going on. Um, and uh, yeah, there might be a certain way in which, like, you know, the the conflict in capital of capital and labor is kind of being simulated by um, actually a kind of union organizing that avoids the issue of capital and wage labor, namely renters unions. Right? Renters unions are are consumers unions, basically. Um, so they 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 train people to become Labour Party activists, even when they're not oriented towards the Labour Party, right? So you have this phenomenon we've engaged with in the US of, like, base building um, with, like, the Philly socialists and community organising and stuff. Um, and they're very much like, no, we don't work with the Democrats. We're not, like, in DSA. But at the end of the day, what they do is kind of Train people who are going to become, like left Democrat community organizers. Um.
2: I mean, it's also um, yeah. There's a. It it also has to be understood as a kind of, an aspect of the kind of demoralization um, that 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 this is, you know, this is all that's left it to to kind of do. Um, but so i there's i guess there's a way in which um asking the ideological questions seems can, can seem improbably hopeful <laughs> or kind of mm-hmm. like uh you know it's almost too painful to think about because um you know uh everything feels very you know difficult and depressing but there there is a kind of i guess in, in platypus there's a, there's a hopefulness there in terms of Hmm. wanting to kind of, you know, we we still have the capacity to to think about these questions. Hmm. And that's
1: Adorno's point in in, resi- in his essay resignation is that it's the student activists who are resigned. Right? That they like accuse him of resignation and that actually what they signal is their own resignation.
0: And um, and I think I, I, I think as well, you know, that, that the the the, the prospects for some kind of hopefulness and and you know or realistic optimism about the future goes back to what what was being said about um the the, the very low and limited political horizons of, of of the left as it currently exists right because there's this you know i, I think what goes along with you know movementism and and the, you know chasing after the next big thing is that it's it's so often paved uh, posed as a uh, as an all-or-nothing um, struggle, and and you know when when the outcome is nothing, then people are understandably demoralized by that, right? I mean, you know, the the whole project of Corbynism there was basically only one unifying demand uh, or, or unifying objective posed by it um, for the people who are involved by it, and that was um, let's get a Corbyn government. And and as soon as that disappears off the agenda and becomes an impossibility, uh, then People have nowhere to go um, because no one has thought thought to them about um, you know what what do we do if we don't get that, uh, let alone you know what, what do we do if we get it? Where should we go next once you know once Corbyn's in office? Um, I and, think and so, yeah. one
1: problem that Edmund is is like who's this we? Mm. You know, like um, first of all, it implies like. A kind of deeper attachment to the Labour Party, um, that actually is like, okay, we we basically are the Labour Party, but we're not, but we don't have a proper strategy yet, and so we've been kind of spun around on the on on this on this ride with Corbyn and trying to get him to be the leader and so on. Um, it's and even kind of beyond the Labour Party, it's 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 not clear who that we. Is that would even pose that question?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, it, 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 in terms of um, in terms of the Corbyn project, and it, it, in terms of what I was going to mention as well, which is it, it, in terms of the, the climate crisis. Um, when I say we, I, I, I'm thinking of basically everyone who sees themselves as being on the left in the UK in, in some broad sense, and is involved in some kind of political activity to to go along with that. Um, and, and I think what's um, what's a really sort of pernicious aspect of those projects is that um, is the, the, the very kind of binary um, ways in which their goals are posed, right? Because, I mean, it's 2030 that we've got to achieve carbon neutral by, and, and we're in 2022 now, 2021 rather. Um, and uh, we're, we're, you know, in all likelihood not going to achieve it. Um, and, and so the, there's, there's got to be a, um, there's got to be an accounting for how things are likely to develop, you know, rather than a kind of blind hope. There's, there's got to be a kind of measured optimism and, and patience and, you know, a systematic thinking through of, of, you know, how history develops and, and, and strategy to go along with that, right? Which is just absent from the left at the moment.
1: But it's also like, what, what actually is our goal? right, to invoke Rosa Luxemburg, Um, what is our task? Is it to have carbon neutral by 2030? Like that, the environmentalism stuff is a key way in which the question of building an independent socialist party is deferred, Um, because we we can't do it now, we've got to solve the climate first. and. the political task of the Socialist Party is the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, and the raising the class struggle to the political level. Um, and that task is is kind of um, you know of building a, a party. An independent working class politics is kind of infinitely deferred because there's always going to be something that comes up that's more urgent whether it's you know the endless defeating fascism or, or kick the tories out or fight the right or um carbon neutral by 2030 or you know whatever it may be there's always going to be that
0: thing that's a- absolutely yeah no no i i agree with that completely i mean our goal as communists is you know the, the construction of you know, the Cooperative Commonwealth, or, or or whatever you want to call it, um, and and as you say, building the movement that can get us there, you know, a movement of of conscious um, militants who can, uh, you know, we, we we can take power. But it's uh, I I think at the same time, in order to reach people who are currently in this kind of zombified left, um, I, I I think we have to be able to understand first of all why. The, the latest big thing that, that you mentioned, you know, the latest urgent task um, that pushes the 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 ultimate goal of, of socialism in, into the background. Um, I, I think we have to understand why that is, why it grips people in that way, and and how we can uh, make the the ultimate goal uh, uh, an urgent and and kind of relevant uh, reality, something they can strive towards.
1: Can I just give one example that, that I think kind of illustrates this point um, and something about platypus, which is one of the early on in my time in platypus, something I did is I interviewed Ian Burchell the kind of SWP veteran, about his biography of Tony Cliff, the founder of the kind of IS tradition, um, and uh, for the platypus review. Um, and one of the, the uh, things he talked about was a the, the dispute within the IS in 1967, 1968, around how to relate to the anti-Vietnam War movement. And that uh, Chris Harmon and several younger members at the time um, were insistent that they must engage with the anti-war movement. Um, and uh, Tony Cliff and Michael Kidron, the kind of older leadership who'd kind of come out of the 40s and 50s, were much more sceptical um, and they really thought it led away from organising the working class. Um, eventually Tony Cliff went over to the side of the younger people and the IS became a kind of a dominant part with the IMG actually in the in the British anti-war protests in 1968 Um, but Michael Kidron maintained his um, opposition to this move and he had a kind of quip about um, anyone who thinks that the the working-class revolution is going to pass through Vietnam or Cuba is shortchanging the working class for the few dollars that they have left in their pockets. And Ian Birchall, you know, who was opposed to Michael Kidron on this position, right? He was like, we should have engaged the anti war movement and it's good that we did. He kind of stopped and reflected and said, well, you know, in the long run, Kidron was right. And that was his thing. Like he could see long-term trends, but he was blind to the kind of short-term, how do you kind of organize people and relating to different movements and so on. And it really was a real tension that n- that neither side of that debate kind of um, was able to answer, but both had a kind of um, both had a certain truth to them. Um, it's not clear, like you know, in that split, which who is left and who is right in that split, if we were to characterize it politically. Um, but certainly, this is a problem that dogged the new left um and goes back a long way uh, yeah
2: there was just something else I, I mean yeah i think that's really interesting i've forgotten about that bit in your article frame so i'm gonna have to go and read that again um but uh i i sensed a slight difference i think you think ed you were saying you know how do we how do we address these people and it just occurred you know who have been who who are invested in the question of um, i can't, i can't quite remember how you phrased it but i think it does it uh, i did want to raise how you know how our different projects and and who we see the audience of our different projects maybe um Uh, I I don't know who, like, what Prometheus Journal sees as its audience. I'm presuming it's um, primarily leftists that have been involved in Corbynism, but um, I might be wrong. Um, I think in Platypus we've kind of, um, we've been oriented towards students on campus um, who are curious about these ideas um, uh, but maybe haven't uh signed up to anything yet um and there's a kind of necessary step back that platypus has from some of these questions um, in order to do the work that we're doing um i, I guess i'm you know i'm just trying to understand the diff- different different Goals that we have with our project
0: and and how that relates to this question of. We well, uh, left. yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a really important question, and I'm going to let uh, you know Chris and 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 Ritter as well um, c- come in on this. Um, I I think possibly a, a slight kind of difference, not as a point of principle, but perhaps just in in terms of. Um, Practically, you know the the way in which we're operating right now. I mean, you know, we we've been launched uh, under the current conditions of the pandemic. You know, which has obviously kind of circumscribed a lot of um, things that might be regarded as mainstays of of political activity uh, on the, on the left and trade unions. Uh, you know, definitely in, in the Labour Party, uh, which is not by any means. Which are not by any means like the things that take up all of our time. Uh, I don't think any of us are, are hyperactive, but I think that has an impact. I think in terms of, um, taking a step back, uh, in order to address the questions, um, which, which you said, I, 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 I think that's like on the whole a very important approach. And I guess maybe I'm, <sighs> I, I would describe myself as optimistic that People who are currently like the, the, involved in um, left politics, involved in trade unions, interested in either of those things in any way, even people with quite kind of liberal views, but who who just recognise many of the problems of capitalist society. I guess I'm I'm optimistic that they can be reached with. Um, rigorous politics, which, you know, promoting communist politics and, and trying to uh, explain, uh, if, you know, patiently, if necessary, the the ideas on which, uh, which we want to promote. Um, and, you know, especially in the case of people who've already been active in the left in some way, trying to um, bring them out of the cul-de-sacs that they're so often in, you know, the, the sinks of, of their time. Uh, you know, the, the, the routines of activism, which we can see we aren't really kind of taking them anywhere or, or, or developing, um, politically. And, and so I, 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 I'm quite kind of, um, I, I think a lot about how to, uh, you know, bring those people on, onto a, um, a, a more sort of sustainable and, and, um, rigorous political footing. Uh, and I think that kind of educational work is, is something that I see is really important, but I'll, I'll, I'll let Chris kind of chip in as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, our audience is, is the left, the Marxist left, as it is currently constituted in uh, Britain, uh, in all of its fragments, ones and twos and what have you. What we decided not to do is um, try to replicate other people's work. Um, There's no points on us uh, providing commentary about trade union struggles or the the political ongoings in the Labour Party or what have you. Um, other people are doing that. We agree with them to, on some things, disagree with them on probably a great many things. Um, but we definitely did not want to just be another repli- replicating machine on the left. Um, so we did want to ask those kind of questions. Why? Why has the working class movement declined? Why is the trade unions um, blinked out of most people's um, lives? Why um, is it, have we not made strides forward? What's what's going on? Um, what is the current situation in terms of how we relate to capitalism? How we understand capitalism? Where is it going? Is it in, is it are we in a never ending crisis? You know, as we are led to believe, all by um, some comrades, or is capitalism being it, Remarkably strong um, over the last thirty years, despite um, the crisis and the questions that have been posed at it, despite um, obviously the oncoming issues with climate ch- climate change and what have you. So we wanted to really have space for us to ask those questions, to fight for um, a Marxist politics. Um, we thought was uh, being lost in the in the in the noise around Corbynism and the Labour Party. Um, and not really be a space for activism, but to be a space for um, thinking and discussion, whether we can, we can pull that off, I think we will, we'll will see in the next few years and what have you. Um, yeah, um, Rida, did you want to add anything?
4: Yeah, so I very much see what they're doing as a kind of as pedagogical work, in that we, I think we have Left that is completely sort of undermined by confusion and a lack of clarity as to what its objectives are, what it's doing when it says, Oh, we want to transform society. Um, And I think that I think this actually creates a lot of obstacles um, in terms of building a movement and building a party, which is kind of the goal. Um, And I I agree with Chris, like, we didn't want to do something which is just sort of like, we didn't want to, like, create another Noir, we didn't want to create another Labour Notes, we didn't want to do these things, not because these um, organisations don't sometimes produce interesting and valuable work, but because I think, I think there's a question of um, sort of, like, resources and doing what... I think in general, a lot of left wing activists kind of get like hampered by trying to do everything and trying to be everything. Um, I think we have a fairly clearly defined focus that what we want to do is to sort of encourage critical discussion and inquiry about sort of the fortunes of the socialist movement in the UK um, that will sort of involve, um, that will involve and engage with different traditions in the course of that um without this kind of sort of commitment of like you know we will like comment on every like fight that happens in a constituency Labour Party Mm
1: -hmm. yeah I I was just gonna say I think that the interesting the the emphasis on a pedagogical role is interesting um I guess one of the things we're interested in We've been talking a bit about recently in Platypus is how the left is educated, um, where people get their ideas from and their kind of their Marxist training or whatever it is. One of the major phenomenon, phenomena we're experiencing in the past couple of years is the organizational collapse of the sectarian left, and the sectarian left played a pedagogical role really truly like it wasn't a political force but it basically had a certain way of training people in some form of what it thought was marxism or trotskyism um and that the what we've got instead is a very diffuse kind of thing where people are self-educated on the internet so you have this phenomenon of internet leftists who are basically just educated online and it's very very eclectic and it's very difficult to get a sense of um, the historical conflicts within the ideas that they're receiving so lots of things that were historically incompatible become kind of compatible all of a sudden and you find some very strange kind of mashups you also get really weird things like the kind of trend of neo-stalinism um as a kind of internet phenomenon where people are actually like know all this arcane knowledge about like the soviet union and um it's all very strange and uh it's very unclear what the politics really behind it is so i think there's um know one of the things Platypus has been emphasizing from the very start from 2006 is a crisis of pedagogy on the left a crisis of education and the organizational forms that takes and the way that that relates to a kind of intergenerational transmission that you know the new left kind of botched educating Gen X, and Gen X really botched educating the Millennials. And then some remaining New Left Boomers tried to educate the Millennials, but the relationship was kind of never really worked through. Um, I think a a key example of that is the role Leo Panic, for example, played in relation to Jacobin and Tribune. and you know, just as one example. Um, and then now there's the question of, actually the millennials are now in their thirties and they are uh, shock horror gonna be teaching kids in universities and they're gonna be teaching them their leftism as Marxism. And uh, there are kind of real questions about, you know, the kind of what, what that's gonna mean. Um, so, something we tried to raise in platypus is is taking pedagogy very seriously and and being very honest and asking people about where their ideas come from historically in kind of uh, political trajectories in the 20th century rather than a, rather than um, what you often find on the left which is people denying where they 've got their ideas from um, or going for a kind of eclecticism um and just finally like the, the revamp of Tribune is just a great example of that kind of, um, on the one hand a kind of eclectic mush but on the other hand totally forgetting like that you know the experience of the new left was that Tribune was the right.
4: I also um, think one of the sort of one of the symptoms that comes out of the kind of like internet left is this really hyper individualization of like ideology and that everyone has their own like unique little like Mm -hmm. figures they've massed up together and said this is like my theory and there's very little sense of um, a collective ideology or a collective framework in which ideas can be discussed and when you like look at the difference from like the second international in which there's obviously a huge range of diversity, but you have this like framework of papers and journals that everyone would be reading and everyone would kind of um, be engaging with the same ideas with a sort of degree of seriousness and how that how that actually I think forms a sort of like essential basis for actually, for actually carrying out a meaningful debate. Um, in a way you can't really have in a left where everyone has their own like little thing they're all in a way everyone is in a sort of like swamp of unity in which like differences are just not acknowledged but equally everyone is like terribly unique and has their like own sort of personal brand of leftism um and you kind of I I kind of see a sort of crucial task for the left in is like overcoming that and sort of rebuilding a common framework, um, and common reference points by which ideas can be discussed and debated.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, regularly in not in my political life but in my working life, I. I come across people who went through the militant, who've been trained by the militant and, you know, and still know all of these debates and what have you, you know, usually working class, um, who've been trained how to speak, trained how to write properly and what have you. And and the function that the militant did on the Communist Party before it, and of course, lots of other Labour-affiliated organisations as well, to be fair, did all of that work you know the socialist sunday schools and all this kind of stuff are all gone you know um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know whether we have to blame um the boomers and um the new left um but, I, mean, well,
1: I mean they they had a rational kernel right i mean like militant that's obviously not what we want to recreate no. um, and and the politics is is kind of the right in terms of the left yeah. um a but there was an attempt to, yeah, to kind of break with the organizational forms um, and to create new ones. And I guess we've kind of what we're experiencing is a repetition of the break with um, the sectarian form of reproducing pedagogy, um, and uh, but we are not producing. You know even new left level of um you know i mean the new left basically rewrote the history of the socialist movement from chartism onwards in like huge volumes um that were engaged in a kind of at a political level on the question of historiography now whether you think they were good or bad that's like um a task that the millennial left is just not even up to competing on Um yeah, my I, Lucy once came round to my house and my dad decided to tell the story about how he once was militant, tried to recruit him in the Brighton Labour Party in the 1970s, I guess. Um, and uh, he was invited round to someone's house from the Labour Party branch for a cup of tea. And um, then they basically started, you know, quizzing him on a bunch of like ideological questions and um, he my dad had been reading a a book about anarchism and the guy said to him what's that book my dad said "Oh, it's this book about anarchism at which point another person burst out of the wardrobe and basically who turns out been hiding there the whole time and you know grabbed the book and started screaming at my dad about the you know the opportunist deviations of anarchism
4: Um,
1: (laughs) and uh no, these people took took it seriously <laughs> to, uh, to the point of insanity. But um, nowadays, it would be hard. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who could really like give you a good rant about why they're opposed to anarchism, <laughs> you know, um, have however you, degraded.
0: Uh, have you not met Socialist Appeal?
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, they are the weakened version of militant. Um, yeah. They do still try and train their students to speak like they they're, the way their meetings are set up is like um, someone's giving a talk right, and um, they reproduce the points and um, that's actually like maybe not something to scoff at
4: on that sort of note on how like modern day trotskyists um, train their um train their recruits I was wondering like what people sort of made of the kind of like models of like one-on-one political education that like the AWL do for example where like if they are trying to recruit you someone will kind of you know you'll have like sort of regular meetings for discussion in which they'll pick a topic you'll do some reading about it and they will like talk about it with you and for me this like experience like really much kind of prepared me very well for like university tutorials which were basically the same thing <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I wonder like to what extent do people actually think these are sort of effective ways of like making cater? um I
1: I would say I would you know again to return to the kind of point, um. It's, you know, with something like the AWL, what you're actually being trained is to be a Labour Party activist and Marxism is being abused towards that end. Um, So I think that the educational model is ineffective because of the way it relates history to the present. Um, And. uh, Yeah, that's what I would say
2: it's interesting uh, yeah a lot of these sectarian groups obviously they have it, it in the guise of of teaching marxism um may have also taught people other skills right like organizing yeah. skills so yeah. of course there are like many good i'm sure you know just effective in terms of just being able to organize things trade union organizers in who have, mm-hmm. have been trained to organize through they're sectarian Marxist
1: groups, but. But you'd be surprised how, 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 um, how much, uh, kind of lowered expectations that already involves. So when I went to the AWL summer camp where I, where I met Reader, um, one of the lead organizers there explained to me their model of, uh, workplace bulletins um and where you don't have a union in an in a workplace but you have like one or two sympathetic workers and you draw up a two-sided document with basically uh, workers complaints on one side and then kind of more programmatic issues or more political issues on the other and you have it distributed at this like place of work but in a kind of unofficial capacity um But of course, it's not really uh, oriented towards organising the workers. It's oriented towards organising the students who are the ones who have to go down there and hand out the paper. It gives them something to do. And it makes them feel like they're engaging with the working class. Um, So these things have a kind of recursive... Even where they kind of turn outwards, they actually have a recursive, reflexive quality to them that reflects the the kind of um, the recruitment model.
0: Yeah, and 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 I think we've all kind of I, I'm I'm pretty sure we've all kind of concluded that we you know part of breaking with sectarianism is is breaking with the the models of these groups that basically most of what they do is it's geared around reproducing their own organisation, right? Um and and you know and, and that's, you know, while I I mean clearly the, the sort of one on one mentoring that, that Red was talking about is can be very effective. Um it's also kind of not something that currently can be done at a scale um that that does anything other than you know just kind of maintains um you know quite small groups and, and reproduces them.
2: I think yeah it's funny it's funny though because um platypus (laughs) it you know a couple of the founding members of platypus had been in the spartacist youth organization and many of the activities that we do we have a reading group we run like informal coffee breaks we do do mentorship stuff um Mm -hmm. one one one-to-one stuff although that's kind of evolved over time it's like something another activity and then we you know run public meetings all of these things too have, you know, as kind of mechanisms for like learning about stuff on the history of the left have come from the sectarian left. Um, so, you know, we're all we we're not completely separate from that. Uh, so again, it comes down to like the goal of the education um, and, and the audience as well. I think um, the way that Platypus is one step back, we're, we're focused on Asking questions, as opposed to, um, uh, I don't know, offering advice <laughs> to what's yeah. boxes left. Um, we are engaged in a in a question of, yeah, I guess hosting conversation on these on these questions rather than mm. um, program per se or, um.
1: I think the 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 main like term in platypus to describe this is via negativa that we're trying to conduct a kind of negative education um, that um, that basically um, you learn about the kind of uh blocked paths and the way they present in the present and you experience, through engaging with the left, the, um, the gap between history and the present. Um, so in our reading group, we read kind of the canonical, or in part of the reading group in, in the second term is reading um, the canonical kind of pamphlets of the Second International Radicals, so Lenin, Luxembourg and Trotsky. Um, And again, that syllabus is kind of or that part of the syllabus is kind of given to us by the sectarian left and part of the function is that then when we go to like socialist appeal meeting and they stand up and cite reform or revolution as a justification for their activity in the Labour Party, we have read Reformer Revolution and we know what Rosa Luxemburg said, and we can actually experience this kind of like cognitive dissonance of the way history is being used in the present. And that's actually a kind of negative education. It doesn't really exactly tell us what to do now. Um, there isn't a kind of programmatic guide to action that, that's neatly available to us.
2: And I'd uh, say we also, although we engage with with other leftist groups, we're not, we're not, you know, in terms of existing leftists, we're not, I mean, it might be an indirect thing if we were to off, you know, provide education for them, but that's, that's not been our primary audience. It's, um, people who, students who might even be wholly skeptical of the left, um, per se, mm-hmm. um, Uh, but are nevertheless interested in these questions, and um, I I think, possibly another... I don't know, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll leave it there.
0: Right, well, uh, I mean, I think that's been a really fascinating discussion on on a number of levels. and uh, i think we'll wrap it up there thanks so much both of you for coming on give me a lot to think about definitely um uh, and hopefully the people who listen to this as well